As our society continues to unveil fractures within its social and political systems, the show, A Line Traced, aims to examine topics that are immediate, pressing, and impact the built environment in ways that require urgent architectural responses. A podcast by RAA at the Architectural Association. Welcome to the next episode of this series of A Line Traced, which will focus on female pioneers and the history of virtual reality. I'm Paula Stronden. I'm a transdisciplinary VR artist with a background in architecture and taught on the AA's Media Studies program. In this episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Brenda Laurel, a pioneer in human-computer interaction in the field of virtual reality, immersive theater, and gender inclusivity in technology and game design. Hey, Brenda. Thank you so much for coming today. I'd like to dive right in and start at the very beginning of your career. Could you please tell us why and how you started working with virtual technologies in the first place? Well, I think it's, um, it begins with my work in theater. Um, I worked as an actor from the age of 12. Um, I got an MFA in acting and directing and then went on to do my PhD in theater, uh, drama criticism and theory. But as I was working toward the PhD, I had discovered virtual reality. I should back up and say I had started working in the computer game business in 1976 at, while I was a graduate student, very early days. Anyway, fast forward, I had a friend who worked at NASA Ames Research, Scott Fisher, and he invited me over to come and see some of the early, early VR they were using for training of astronauts. And this was in the early days of, you know, glowing green vectors and stuff. It wasn't, didn't look like it does now, but I became enamored of it. And I immediately saw the connection between the technology's capabilities and the theater. That is the ability to enter an imaginary world, be a different person um, and behave in ways that have consequences. So that became the focus of my PhD dissertation in theater, um, uh, what I called a computer-based interactive fantasy system. And a few years after I uh, got my PhD, Rachel and I began to hatch the plan of doing placeholder at the Banff Center. And just, uh, I mean, the fact that you as an actor or yeah, a theater PhD student were invited to NASA Research Center by Scott Fish, how did that come about? <laughs> well, because I was in the computer game industry, um, when I came to California in 1979, I came to work at Atari um, because I had had the experience in Ohio of working with CyberVision. Um, so by... By the time I met Scott, I was at the Atari Research Lab, Atari Systems Research Lab, and I believe he showed up there in 1980, 82, maybe somewhere in there. Anyway, <laughs> he was uh, very enamored of virtual reality, and there had been close to it experiments at MIT, um, Architecture Machine Group, where a lot of the people in the lab came from. That became the MIT Media Lab. Um, so I met Scott at Atari uh, in the lab and knew that he was engaged in VR and requested an opportunity to see what he was working on later on at NASA. 
Was it a very interdisciplinary setup, the people who were working there, also in the yeah, former MIT Media Lab? Oh, yes, uh, quite. Um, and the Atari Systems Research Lab was an amazing place because Alan Kay was the head of it, who's a saint in the world of everything computers, I think. Um, and he, in fact, I was one of the very few people who were members of the research staff who wasn't from MIT. Uh, but yeah, we had a really diverse and exciting group of people. That's also where I met Rachel Strickland, who became my collaborator on, on a Placeholder. Yeah, I mean, maybe, yeah, you should tell us more about Placeholder. So that's the work that you did at BAM Center for Arts in Canada in the early 90s. And uh, yeah, you already mentioned Rachel Strickland, who you collaborated with. I would be yeah super interested to hear more about it, and also maybe yeah our listeners you could uh, describe that um, that work because we will be linking the the film to it. But I think it's amazing to hear also in your words. Well, um, Rachel and I began with a, a general goal of doing something besides training with the medium of VR, because in those days VR was being used for astronaut training at NASA. And then later, Silicon Graphics was using it to train people to drive Caterpillar heavy equipment and stuff like that. But we had not seen the use of VR as play or as dreaming, you know. And so our, our as we cooked up this plan for the BAMP Center, that was that was our goal, was to make a, a design statement that showed that you could use this medium for imaginative things. And I was working in a similar vein with the Ray Bradbury stuff in my in my PhD dissertation. So it all kind of came together. Um, Placeholder attempted to do several things that hadn't been done. One was to accommodate two users simultaneously. Another, and to allow them to interact with one another. Another was to include Uh, different worlds. So you could go from one to another. We had three virtual environments. Another was to do uh, capture, that is representation of those worlds with different media. So the cave world was captured with, with sound, uh, thanks to Scott Foster and the Convolvatron. Uh, it was a three-dimensional sound map that led to the creation of graphics Uh, Michael Neymark collaborated on capture of the waterfall environment, which was a virtual relief projection. Um, and then we had a hoodoo environment that was tiled um, video. So that was cool. We did uh, we did something else that we weren't intending. I guess it didn't come up until later, but we gave people the opportunity to enter the bodies and sensoria of other kinds of animals. So you could become a crow, a fish, a spider, a snake. And if you were a crow, you could fly. And uh, if you were a spider, you could you you had this bifurcated view of the world. And, and if you were a snake, you could see into the infrared. And um, the, the characters themselves were kind of translucent, two-dimensional uh, guys based on kind of a cave painting style. So, yeah, you could become an animal, inherit its sensorium. Your voice was altered. Um, you could move between the worlds through magic portals. And we had this great discovery. We made these portals from one world to the other where you would, you know, there were 
there were spirals and you'd stick your head in and it would transport you. Well, when we tested this, uh, if you were if the transport was immediate, people got really sick. And so we discovered that it took about two seconds of darkness uh, where you could see the glowing lights from your hands to keep your orientation together uh, to make that traverse without being sick and disoriented. Um, and we we manage that also by letting the audio from the previous world fade and the audio from the world you were going to come up. So the transition was smooth. One of the things I think people haven't recognized in at least very well in contemporary VR is that um, jump cuts do not work in VR. If you are having an embodied experience, the last thing you want, you know, is to point and and teleport unless it takes some amount of time and you've got some motion parallax going on it's going to be very abrupt and disruptive of your flow yes i totally agree i think it's really beautiful that you have this yeah strong multi-sensory approach in your work and you've just described this connection between sound and vision but you also worked a lot with physical or material object so in the documentary that we will link there's this beautiful scene where quite heavy stones are being collected in the national park around the center and they're being yeah just thrown onto the play area where the people will go in and then there's this testing scene where somebody walks bare feet with closed eyes to see where, where the play area ends and I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the presence of objects stones the idea of also yeah touch and maybe even voice sure so the the stones were called voice holders um, because we had been inspired to a large extent by Barry Lopez's writing, in particular, an essay called Landscape and Narrative, um, we felt, well, you know, one of the things we were looking at was how people leave marks in a landscape, graffiti, or they tell stories about it, or they take pictures of it, and that's a kind of mark that stays in your memory. So the voice holders were intended to be holders for little stories. Um, and they had different facial expressions depending on whether they already had something in them or not. Um, so you could leave a, you know, like a 15 second, 30 second story in one of these things and then put it somewhere. They were, <laughs> they didn't, they didn't succumb to gravity, so they would float around. And one of the things we learned was that people would would leave a little bit of a story and then somebody would come in and listen to that and create another voiceholder that continued it. And, and they began to make lattices of stories, which is just emergent behavior. We did not ex expect that to happen. So that was very cool. So those were some of the objects uh, that were in the world. Um, and the second question you asked me, um, after that. Yeah, I think you already answered both because it was this relationship between voice and objects, but because in your case they were one, I think it goes together. Um, there was also this element that you were present in the experience, no? There was this role, I think you described already, your background in acting mm -hmm. and theater, that this was a very performative piece as well. Um, could you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. We... we... We discovered that people got confused. I mean, this was such a novel experience um, and sometimes needed help or suggestions. So I invented this character called 
appropriately enough, the goddess, and um, played that role myself from the sound booth. And so in three-dimensional audio, um, spatialized audio, you can have a sound seem to be coming from anywhere. So the sound of the goddess's voice to the players seemed to be coming from inside their heads. <laughs> Naughty trick. Um, so, um, for example, I remember a couple of men came into the system and they were um, standing there and one says to the other, well, what do we do? Can I shoot you? Can I eat you? And this was an opportunity for the goddess to make why don't you try exploring together, you know, uh, to try to get them off this trajectory of a violent video game in this beautiful environment. Um, so I had fun with that. And um, we had another piece of emergent behavior that was really swell. Um, one time, a couple of players were both at the waterfall, and one was fish and one was crow. And crow was loving to fly to the top of the waterfall and then fly down. And he would scream and carry on. And spider got jealous. <clears throat> and I think it was my suggestion, the goddess, I'm not sure I said, a, you know, a generous crow would share his body. And, and spider said, he certainly would, you know. Uh, and so Crow contritely says, would you like to share my body, spider? And, and so in order to get out of the crow body, he had to become a different animal. So he stuck his head into the fish, which vacated the crow. And the spider entered the crow and she got to be the crow. And body swapping was not something we had in mind, but it was so lovely. <laughs> That's beautiful. I think also, yeah, what you described in this first example, how uh, this expectation of people to within a virtual environment or within a VR application to be in this like training mode or, um, yeah, that usually like we associated with these violent video games and you in inserted this idea of like play, dreaming, fantasy. And I think, yeah, that maybe also takes me to my next question, which is, that as one of the earliest yeah, female game designers, you investigated a lot into the relationship between gender and technology, and you started developing computer games for girls in the 1990s, as well as founding the company Purple Moon. So um, could you tell us about yeah why you thought at that point that this would be important and what was yeah your process in developing that and what were the outcomes? Well, I have to thank my daughters. Um, my little girls were in elementary school. I think one was in kindergarten at the time. No, elementary. And there was a computer lab. This is 1995. And all the boys were up at the computers and all the girls were sitting in the back of the room feeling like they would break it if they touched it, except for my daughter, Hillary, who <laughs> was up there writing code for the boys but she's a special case. Um, there was a tremendous disparity in how girls and boys encountered technology, um, plus the massive social barrier, which said in those days, and probably still today, that math and science and technology, and by extension, you know, computer science, um, are male gendered Uh, subject areas, that men are better at these things and that that's more gender appropriate. Now, certainly that's softened in, in the intervening 25 years. But uh, 
it's still present. You still see it at work. So one of our goals in and working with Purple Moon was to understand how we might intervene on behalf of girls um, uh, to help them get more exposure to computer technology and maybe pique their interest. And so at Interval Research, we undertook a study uh, to determine differences between how girls and boys play. We couldn't ask how do girls and boys play video games differently because girls really weren't playing video games. There weren't video games that that were easily available to them. There were some arcade games that girls were playing, like Pole Position and Pac-Man. But that, again, that was a pretty small percentage. And adult women were playing um, narrative games. But little girls, no, nothing, nada. So we had to ask a different question because how girls play video games differently would have a a null answer, you know. So we looked at differences in gender and play. And we discovered, for example, that girls and boys play a lot of the same games, but they play them at different ages. Um, I guess the most profound discoveries that we made, I should say that we interviewed over a thousand children and a couple of hundred adults all over the United States. So uh, and the adults were from everything from marketing to playground supervision. So we got a really good view uh, of what was going on. That There are profound differences in how girls and boys tend to create their position in a social situation. Um, so boys tend to work hierarchically. Um, uh, and, and, you know, if if this important guy is my friend, then that puts me in the second row down, et cetera, et cetera. And there's inheritance and stuff. Girls tend to work in a networked way. So it's it's more important in a way how many friends are in your network um, than it is which friends. And so with boys' networks, comp direct competition is an obvious way to change one's social status in a in, in a girl's network it's more likely that an individual you will use affiliation or exclusion to change the shape of their network these are moderately covert activities um, and you find things like gossip entering in as a tool I don't mean this in a derogatory way it's just what we observed um, so armed with some knowledge about differences in how girls and boys play, how they achieve social status. Um, and also we, we, we learned some things about differences in how girls think about their social lives and their inner lives. Um, that kind of information really informed us about what kinds of games we might make uh, that, would, that would both attract girls and repel boys. Um, <clears throat> and the point of repelling boys was that we didn't want your older brother playing it and pronouncing it lame, and therefore you would never play it yourself. So we gave the games cooties. Um, I don't know if people still use that word, but we made them so that boys would be allergic to them. Um, and they became emotional rehearsal spaces um, for girls between, I'd say, 7 and 11 uh, in terms of how all their social interactions and their private worlds unfolded. Um, 
in the major series, uh, which was called Rockets New School, and there were eight games, I think, in that series, you could uh, you could make a choice based on your emotional response to a situation and see how that played out. And if you didn't like it, you could go back and make a different choice. And that was focused on our observation that girls at this tween age have this sense of social inevitability going on, at least American girls do, where, oh, it had to happen that way and I couldn't have changed it. And, or I'll show them, you know, and, and so there's a sense that there was no alternative to how things turned out. So part of becoming a teen is getting that flexibility that lets you understand that your choices and actions can make a difference in what happens. So that's that's essentially what we did with that series. And it was quite popular for the first for the year of our launch. Um, we were beating John Madden football. <laughs> And our website was beating Disney. Um, So we quickly had a lot of competition. Many, many people were approaching girl games at that same period of time. Mattel with the Barbie, uh, the giant killer, and her interactive and girls games, et cetera. And what ended up happening after a couple of years is that, you know, Mattel had so much leverage for shelf space. Um, that they put the squeeze on the rest of us, and they began to acquire um, other companies in the in the girl space to protect Barbie, and that's essentially what happened to us. Although we did not make any money on the deal, uh, and they they promptly drove a stake through the heart of all their competitors, except for American Girl. Um, and then a couple of years later, their game division went belly up because they had spent too much money on brands they couldn't support. So it was an interesting time. And it just goes to show that the resistance to a certain kind of feminism is alive and well, at least it was then. And it still is now. If we look hard enough, we can find it. Um, yeah, I think, it, I mean, this is really interesting thinking that you did all that research in the 90s. And I would be interested What do you think? Because you spend an incredible amount of time, I think it was over two years, and kind of, yeah, traveling the country, speaking to all these girls, like speaking to, yeah, what you described, the teachers, etc. And, uh, of course, it's it's still like in the way how it's been described, it's like based on quite like a binary understanding of gender, which, of course, nowadays also we, yeah, we would understand it much more fluid or like there would be also, I think, a lot of, uh, yeah, guys kind of uh, revolting against these things and saying, no, like, of course, there's a lot of other space that also is needed or that um, is shared within that extent. And I would be interested what you would think to the type of research that you've done, like, yeah, how uh, necessary it would be to redo it or how you think it would uh, would turn out if you read it Purple Moon today, for example? Well, first of all, one thing that I think has not changed is the sense that many males have that the game world is theirs. That video games are the boys. And you will see that. You saw that in, in you know, Gamergate and, you know, and this may be an extremist position, but it still exists. Now, if we redid the research today, first of all, I would be more bold about including uh, queer and transgender kids in the cast of characters. Um, We had many discussions about that, and we sort of decided at the time 
that the age group that we were looking at probably wouldn't understand those concepts, that has changed and should. And so representation um, is important and it need not be explicit. You know, we did have uh, some characters that could have been either male or female, but we didn't make a deal out of it. Um, today, I think we would find much more awareness of, of queer and transgender identities, um, and we would be more likely to include that observation. I think that girls are much less um, frightened by or put off by technology than they were then. You remember, in the intervening years, we had the internet, and females have been you know, power users of the web uh, since it showed up. So their comfort with technology has really changed. Um, the profession, uh, it's interesting because in the game design world, we still have, you know, like 20% females, maybe less um, in that profession. And then if you look at professions like interaction design, or, you know, big data even, you're finding a lot more females is closer to 50-50 also in research environments. So some things have changed around the technology landscape that we would want to look at again. Probably the biggest change that we would need to incorporate is social media and cell phones, mobile phones, excuse me, we don't say cell anymore. Mobile phones. I mean, the people weren't using, kids weren't using those in 1995. And it changes the social landscape so radically that it would need to be acknowledged in a game that would be intended to make a girl feel like they were having a rehearsal for their life. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it just reminded me of uh, something you said. So there's an article that was published by on Artlink by Claire Evans, who wrote the book Broadband, the untold story of the woman who made the internet. And there she's uh, she's citing you and uh, you say, so I'm quoting you now, what frustrates me most is that we learn some shit that some people aren't paying attention to and uh, that today's practitioners are probably not even aware of what was built in the early 90s, mostly by women. So you're referring to, uh, yeah, the article discusses the work that you described to us also of placeholders and you're referring to the VR works that were developed or created mostly by women at that time. And... I'd be really interested in, um, yeah, in uh, asking you to tell us more about uh, why frustrate, why it's frustrating you so much and what you think is missing. Like, what are the aspects that have gotten lost by this history not being discussed and surfaced enough? Um, well, we spoke earlier, I mentioned jump cuts in VR being really disconcerting and, and interrupting flow. We learned this in the early 90s. And yet, you know, when you look at the VR startups in the 2010s and teens, you had this typical point and teleport mechanism for getting around in a lot of those systems. It's like people didn't do the research, they didn't care, <laughs> and they didn't know what had happened in the past, you know, what we had found out, and we published about it. So it's not like a surprise. It's but I, as a as a Teacher, I was in higher education for 20 years, I guess, after uh, my career in uh, computer tech, although I was still teaching 
interaction design. Um, as I watched, I saw students coming into university situations with much less knowledge overall about history, humanities, um, geography, <laughs> civics. Um, students I felt were, spe well, I know, are specializing too soon, it seems to me. So if it were up to me, I'd eliminate BFAs, for example, because that's, that's, if you look at the curriculum, they're not getting the necessary general education to be functioning um, artists and inventors and thinkers and citizens. So in a way, the ignorance about early VR is a subset of the general ignorance that I see among a lot of kids uh, coming to college now. Um, and part of that, we have to blame our education system. Um, high school education is, is not giving kids a good enough grasp across the board of history, civics, uh, et cetera. And now with the new crazy politics that are going on around that, I'm afraid that situation will only get worse. Um, so for those of us who are educators, it's really important to find ways to, to it, it within our curriculum design, say you're stuck in a place where kids don't have a history requirement or a civics requirement or a humanities course at all, then it's up to you as a teacher in, say, computer games or interaction design to somehow find a way to fold that in to what you're teaching and to evoke curiosity. Um, genuine curiosity from students about these matters and to make resources available to them. In a way, we have to do the remediation ourselves as educators in, in tech. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, I think the ahistoricity um, comes both from the educational environment and also from a kind of arrogance that comes with the generation <laughs> I think, yeah, I said that um, out loud. your curiosity, last time we spoke, I was really touched by the fact that you described this experience of having seen this Latina Magica as part of an exchange program you did in uh, Soviet Union. And I think the fact that for you personally, VR has never been a new phenomenon or also when you started working with it, it really came out of yeah experiences from other disciplines and maybe you could tell us uh, what that was exactly and how you understood working with virtual technologies through having done that experience. Well, theater itself, you know, I mean, being able to be an actor is a great privilege and you find that when you walk into a script, a whole world opens up between the words um, that lives in your imagination. And it's a it's a thrill because what you're finding as an actor is a part of yourself that you didn't know about before. You know, Lady Macbeth was a trip for me in that regard. <laughs> um, when I went to the Soviet Union, I had the opportunity. This was in 1971. So I had the opportunity to see Lanterna Magica. And at that time, we were in Prague. Um, for that show, uh, dancers were moving across the stage, carrying uh, on one raised hand, a, a, a large round screen. And on that screen, somebody was moving a projector 
to project another scene or dancer onto the screen that was being held by a live dancer. Now, this is 1971. And, and it just blew my mind. And I began working, you know, with integrating video into theater production um, because I was also directing plays at the time. So uh, there's this business of poking a hole in reality. Of, of having the opportunity to put your head in a different place, you always end up discovering new things about yourself and about the qualities of reality that you thought were immutable that are not immutable. <laughs> but maybe I was born hallucinating. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> but it's always been my dream um, to do that sort of thing and to make it possible for others as well. Yeah, I think that's so beautiful. And it reminds me, I think, yeah, you mentioned that quickly in the beginning that in 1986, uh, you published your PhD, which was titled Towards the Design of a Computer-Based Interactive Fantasy System, which, yeah, then formed the basis of your book, Computers as Theater, that has been yeah republished already. And uh, I'd be really interested if uh, you could share why you think this kind of, yeah, scenographic or performative approach to virtual technologies is uh, so important and where, yeah, maybe also as an outlook into the future, where do you hope it uh, comes in more strongly or, um, yeah, how you see that? I think it was Alan Kay who called computers imagination machines. Um, with this notion that we can not only, quote, imitate reality mathematically, graphically, sonically, et cetera, but we can also compute reality. Um, a reality of sorts, that which is available to the sensorium and the mind. That's very much the same thing that theater does. <laughs> I don't know how else to say this. So my goal was to use uh, computer technology to help. So as a game designer, you, you really want the next thing that happens after you make a choice or take an action to be dramatically interesting. But at the same time, you want to feel that you have a sense of freedom to make a difference in what happens. So in order to do that, you need some kind of smarts in there, in your non-player characters or in the world that you create, that tends to lead to dramatically interesting next things happening. Um, so that you've got suspense and, and surprise and all those things that happen in a good play or a good story. But at the same time, you have the freedom to make many different kinds of choices and for any of those choices to make a big difference in, in the world and in what happens. So you can see the consequences of your actions in an interactive situation. Now, in those days, natural language processing was extremely rudimentary. So we weren't in a place where we could generate language like we are today. Um, we knew about, you know, artificial intelligence, and I was looking at expert systems as a way to think about this problem of how do you generate a dramatically interesting next action. Um, That turned out to be a kind of dead-on-arrival approach in the real world of computation, but it was a good start. And what I tried to do was to understand, to take some of the principles from Aristotle's poetics, 
which describe to us the qualities of good drama and incorporate them into an expert system that could generate next things in a computer game such that they would be dramatically interesting and which would have a, a very wider a wide range of the kinds of inputs it could recognize. Um, so that was the goal, and that, you know, was kind of VR. <laughs> um, uh, now with, you know, tools like uh, GPT-4 and uh, other big advances in artificial intelligence and natural language, I think we could actually do some of that stuff. And also you could, in, in, in the kind of notion that I was proposing in my dissertation, you could substitute Bertolt Brecht's ideas about drama for Aristotle's uh, or Chekhov. You know, you could, you could do different things from the poetics. I was just a, a junkie for Aristotle, so that's, uh, that's what I did. <laughs> anyway. It's beautiful. Yeah, I think this idea, also what you described, like this role of agency and also responsibility really comes through all of your projects and to different extents. And um, I think maybe just as a last question, I'd like to ask you uh, what would be maybe your hope or your wildest speculation on the future development of the technology? So where do you think it's heading? Um, maybe, I don't know, you don't have to say a positive thing, but if there's any uh, you'd like to share, we'd be happy to hear it. I don't know where it's heading. I know what I hope. I hope that one of the place ways that it's heading, one of the directions we will plumb deeply is how we can enhance our spiritual and scientific connection to the natural world and how we might together increase our agency in making this world more of the place that we want it to be, that we know at its heart it can be, uh, both in terms of climate justice and social justice. And these subjects don't have to be boring. My God, if tween angst, if you tried to sell a game on tween angst, people would think it was boring. Uh, Purple Moon wasn't boring. Um, Climate change is not boring. There are plenty of playful things that could happen there and joyous things. And, and I think we're at a time, both socially and scientifically and, and, and spiritually, where we should be used, we can be using the gifts of these technologies that we gave ourselves to do a better job of understanding the world around us And to see new ways that we might make change that matters. Thank you so much, Brenda, for sharing that with us. And um, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to keeping on this conversation and seeing where we are heading. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Female Pioneers and the History of Virtual Reality. Next episode, we look forward to having you with us again as we delve into another extraordinary life of a female pioneer in the world of VR. Thanks for listening to this episode. Air AA podcasts are developed, recorded, mixed and edited by the Architectural Association from our home on Bedford Square in central London. 
To find more episodes, view the show notes and explore other Air AA series, visit air.aaschool.ac.uk.